You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Eric Barton. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Welcome and good morning and Merry Christmas. I hope I'm not the first person to wish you a Merry Christmas. We're delighted that you're here. We're thrilled to get to be gathered together as the church, and I'm super thankful for that song. You guys did an amazing job. I love that song. I wanted to sort of set the stage, because as the song conveys, as we think about Christmas, whatever took place at the birth of Christ was exceptionally human. It was not a silent night, and little baby Jesus cried. Because little baby Jesus was and is and will ever eternally be fully human. So I love the songs that we sing, but there are some of the songs that portray Jesus almost in a mythological sense. But Jesus was human. There was real pain. There was fear. There was trepidation. There was uncertainty. There was doubt. There was suffering and anguish. And we want to remember that. As we think about Jesus, as we come to to feel the emotions and the experiences of Christmas, which is going to really, I think, prepare us for the Christmas text that I want to cover this morning. And the big idea of that text goes very simply like this. Jesus is who the Bible says he is. Jesus is who the Bible says he is. Now, if that's true and that's true, then that must necessarily, by definition, change every single thing about you and me. If the Bible declares Jesus to be fully God, fully man, the Savior of the world, divine and human, and He is alive, then that must change everything else about our lives. It is impossible to encounter Christ as the Bible depicts Him and simply go, meh, you can't do it. So this morning, we're going to look at a familiar passage, and we're going to see that Jesus is who the Bible says that he is. Now, it is the final Sunday of Advent, the most wonderful time of the year. The Christmas season is supposed to be all about bright decorations and cinnamon smells and hugs and presents and family and all other kinds of wonderful things. But I also know that for many of us, it isn't. Christmas has a way of amplifying and sort of increasing a lot of the emotions that many of us feel because of pain or suffering or grief or loss of a loved one or a friend or a family member. And so while Christmas is supposed to be this time where we experience togetherness, for many of us it's the season where we more acutely are aware of that which we are missing. And even in our own membership at this campus of the last couple of weeks, many of our own membership have experienced loss and struggle and fear and uncertainty and doubt and suffering. So I want to pause as we are at this final Sunday of the Advent season, and I just want to pray for all who might be experiencing some pain and grief this season, that the Lord would minister to you in a specific personal way. So I'm going to invite you to please join me in prayer. Father, we have prayed many times already this morning, and you're not tired of it. You love to hear your children seek after you, and so we do that now, God. We thank you for this season, for what it means. We pray, God, that you would continue to impress it upon us. And Father, we do pray for those very specifically who are hurting, 
who are looking to the heavens wondering why and for how much longer? And when will it stop hurting? And we know that you are grieved for them and that you hurt right alongside them. And yet you are the God of all comfort. And so we pray, God, that in this Advent season, as we celebrate and contemplate the coming of Christ, the sending of God himself into our midst and our mess, that you would be pleased to bring people peace and even joy in the midst of suffering and anguish and grief, that they would know that there is a God and he is good and he is for them. So may they receive blessing and peace and joy this season, Father. We pray all these things the only way we can, in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I want to remind you we are looking at the idea that Jesus actually is who the Bible says that he is. And as I thought about all of us, all of you, in preparation for December 22nd, candidly, there's a whole lot of pressure because it's the last Sunday before Christmas and you really got to deliver the best Christmas message ever. At least it's got to be better than last year's because I mean, you know. So I thought, well, what, what, what do I want? What do I hope that the people of our congregation, what do I want them to walk out with? My hope is that all of us would, in a very real sense, receive the greatest gift of Christmas ever. And that is to be confounded all over again that you and I have been set free from sin, from all of the error, all of the failure of our lives and our tendency to wander off the track. We've been set free by the grace of a loving and a sovereign and a good God. That we would at Christmas time, be reminded all over again that it's okay to come to the end of ourselves and to latch onto the goodness and the grace of our God. I read this week, one of my heroes in the faith, Reverend Fleming Rutledge, wrote this, Advent begins where human potential ends. So may we in our hearts and minds come to the end of our human potential, what we think we can accomplish and achieve, and may we latch on to that which Christ has done. It's all about preparations. I think the word that I've heard most frequently this holiday season is the word busy. Oh, I'm just so busy. So much to do. So much to get done. So many places to, to go. So many things to wrap. All these things. I'm busy, busy, busy. And have you been on Broadway lately? And I'm busy, and I'm busy, and I'm busy. Lots of preparations, but I would contend there is one preparation that we must all prioritize. And it is my prayer that this passage this morning will help us to prepare. As my favorite hymn, Joy to the World, says, Let every heart prepare him room. So this morning I want to talk about how do we prepare him room. If you've got your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn to the Gospel of Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, we're going to start reading in verse 26. Luke chapter 1, verse 26. Last week, Matt McGill led us through Luke chapter 1 at the very end of the chapter and the birth of John the Baptist. Incidentally, it's John the Baptizer. He's not actually a Southern Baptist, despite many popular opinions. He's a baptizer. He's not actually, he, he danced, is what I'm told. <laughs> Last week, Matt led us through that text. This morning, we're going to rewind a little bit in Luke chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 26. We've been told of the annunciation, the announcement that Zechariah, who's a priest in Jerusalem, and his wife Elizabeth, though barren, though over the hill, they're going to conceive and have a baby, and his name is going to be John. He's going to be the trailblazer, the pathfinder for the coming Christ. So in Luke chapter 1, verse 26, we'll pick up there. In the sixth month, now this is not the sixth month of the year, this is the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. 
And really, she's kept herself essentially hidden away up until this point. In the sixth month of her pregnancy, that which we've been learning about for the first 25 verses, Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Now, we've heard this story so often that that doesn't really knock us out of our chair, but it should. God sends Gabriel from heaven, the presence of triune God himself, all the glory and the splendor of eternity, and God sends Gabriel, this being, this massively glorious creature who has existed in the presence of God perfectly for millennia of eons, and he sends Gabriel to an area in Galilee, specifically Nazareth. This is like smack dab between the Hatfields and the McCoys. You don't get more backwater than this. But the great thing about this is there is no backwater to deep woods for God. This is like if you get word that uh, God himself, the sovereign king of the cosmos, sent word to like South Carthage and asked Gabriel to like bring him some pork rinds from South Carthage. This is crazy. It's so backwoods, insignificant, non-influential, it doesn't matter. It's Nazareth in the hill country of the northern part of Israel to the west of the Sea of Galilee. There's nothing there. And Gabriel doesn't just go to the city square, to the village center. He goes specifically to this little person. Verse 27, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph. The text wants us to make sure we understand that Mary is probably 13 to 15 years old in that day and time. She's 13, maybe as old as 15, but probably not in the more rural areas in that part of the country. Probably 13, maybe 14 years old. She is betrothed to a man named Joseph. Joseph's probably considerably older than Mary. And you have heard this before, I'm sure, in those days. A betrothal is essentially, functionally, a formal marriage, minus the actual consummation. A father of a bride would negotiate a bride price with the father of a groom because the father of the bride was giving up a helper, someone who could work and do domestic chores around the house, do you see? But the father of the groom was actually gaining someone who could do domestic chores around the house. So there was a price that had to be arranged and agreed upon. They would agree, they would set that contract, the betrothal would be formal, and then she would wait while the groom prepared a place for her to live. So it's during this time that she is betrothed. Her, families, her family and his family have agreed with one another. She's just waiting for Joseph to finish the room on his father's house into which they will move and when they will live. And his name is Joseph, and he is of the house of David. This is important. This is the genealogy. Joseph, who will ultimately adopt baby Jesus, will be his earthly father, is of the lineage of the tribe of Judah. He is in the line of the king David. And the virgin's name was Mary. Now, it's interesting. Luke gives us no information, no context of why that's significant. But this name in Hebrew is Mariam. Moses' sister is named Miriam. It means highly exalted one. <laughs> but she's nobody. She's a 14-year-old girl in Nazareth in the Galilean hill country of northern Israel. She's nobody of, in, of significance. She is not worthy of anything that's about to happen to her. The text wants us to make sure we understand that. Verse 28, And he, Gabriel, came to her and said, Greetings, Kyrie, in the Greek. Kyrie, greetings. It's, it's hail. 
It's a formal, prestigious greeting. Greetings, O favored one. Now, this has been translated variously. Some people translate it full of grace. O highly favored one. Kakeratamine. That's an important word. It only appears one other time in the New Testament. We'll come back to that in a moment. Greetings, O favored one. Highly favored one. Highly esteemed one. One who is worthy of praise. This is how you would greet the king of Israel. This is how you would greet Caesar in Rome. It is a politician's greeting. And the angel of God himself greets this little peasant girl who may be 14 years old in the sticks and he greets her thus. And she must be thinking, what is going on? Of course she was. Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled. Because, I mean, it's Thursday and angels don't show up on Thursdays. It's Tuesday's angel. Everybody knows that. This is highly unusual. She's nobody. And an angel messenger of God has shown up to her. She was greatly troubled at the saying that he called her that. And she tried to discern. She logically tried to reason this out and figure out what is going on here. What sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. Why? For you are awesome. No. For you are really good at what you do. No. See, we're told earlier in the chapter that Zechariah and Elizabeth were actually good, pious people. We're not told that about Mary. She may have been, she may not have been. We don't know. She has simply found favor. God chose her. Why? Because God chose her. That's why. Do not be afraid, Mary. Not, don't be afraid of me. Just don't be afraid in, at all. Don't be afraid, period. Because you see, our natural, instinctive human inclination is that when God pursues us, we want to resist. We still want to be the captain of our own soul, the master of our own fate. We resist God, but Gabriel says, don't be afraid. God is pursuing you. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. It's the same word construction as two verses earlier, the grace. Verse 31, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Then as now, parents have the privilege and the honor and the responsibility of naming their kids. Why is that? Because the kid's generally too young to name himself, being it's just a zygote at the time. Fetuses usually don't name themselves because... Well, you know, they lack comprehension. But this child is actually older than his parents by millennia of eons. He actually predates his parents. This is one of the ways Gabriel is saying, he is divine. He predates you. You don't get to name him. You will call him what he is. You will call him what he does. Jesus, the same word as Yeshua or Joshua or Hosea or Isaiah. It's all the same name construction and it means God saves. Mary... God saves. I know it looks bleak in your world right now with the Roman invasion and occupation, with the economy the way it is, with all the other immorality and the stubbornness, but God saves. In an unexpected way, in an unexpected place, with unexpected, non-usual suspects, God will save, Mary. This is what's going to happen. You will call his name Jesus. And then Gabriel's going to give us some wonderful Christology. In verses 32 and 33, he's going to give us five things about this Jesus. We want to think rightly about Jesus. We want to feel deeply about Jesus. We want to think about Jesus the way Gabriel thinks about Jesus. We want to have heaven's view of Jesus. So in verse 32, we're getting a list of five things. He will be great. 
This is no insignificant birth. He will be a tremendous impact, an incredible influence. Nobody that ever meets Jesus will be indifferent toward him. You can read all four Gospels. Nobody that meets Jesus is indifferent to him. Nobody goes, eh, he's, he's, no, he's catalyzing and he's galvanizing. He is great. His greatness will redefine what greatness really means. In about three and a third decades from this moment in our text, this man will die shamed, gruesomely, naked, hanged on a cross of curse, beaten, scourged, mocked, humiliated, spat upon. He will redefine greatness. He's not going to have any buildings named after him by the time he's dead. No university buildings with his name on their campus. No hospitals bearing his name. He will die in seemingly insignificance. And yet he is the greatest ever. No figure in human history has ever been so catalytic as this Jesus. He's going to lay down his life so that others may actually have life. Those who plotted and schemed to kill him, he will lay down his life to save them. He will be great truly great. Gabriel continues, and he will be called the son of the most high. In that day and age, when you are called the son of something, it is saying you are the exact replica. You are the same stuff as. If you are the son of Rome, you are Rome. Jesus will be great. He will be the son of the most high God. It is Gabriel's way of saying, Mary, 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 you are bringing God, sovereign, infinite, eternal God, you are bringing him into the material world. He is the son of the most high. Marianne would have understood this. All Jewish girls from the time of the prophecy of Daniel were told and to expect that the Messiah would be born of a virgin. So she understood what this utterance from Gabriel meant. He'll be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. God's going to fulfill the promise made to David in 2 Samuel 7. The one that is born to Mary would be the one that was promised a thousand years earlier to David. And the government will finally be on his shoulders. No more corruption, no more depravity, no more geopolitical influences and treaties and all the, no, 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 no. The government will be on the shoulders exclusively of the God-man ruling from the navel of the universe, the city of Jerusalem. Mary, it's coming through you. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. The strong king that the Israelites wanted from the time of Joshua in the book of Judges, they wanted a king to rule over them. Israel wanted someone noble and righteous and good and powerful with a plan. They never, ever got it. But Mary, Gabriel says, Israel's hope for a king is coming and he's coming through you. And his kingdom, he continues on, there will be no end. There will never be a coup. There will never be an expiration. There are no term limits. And nobody would want that anyway. Because the God-man will rule with righteousness and justice and mercy and grace and love and goodness. And it goes on for all, all eternity. Mary, this is your son. Yeah, Mary, this is you. Verse 34, and Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? Literally, since I have not known a man. 
Now, you might remember in the previous part of Luke chapter 1, Zechariah asks the question, yeah, I don't know, how is this going to be? But this is a different sort of question. Zechariah is in the temple of God offering sacrifice. He's in the Holy of Holy. An angel shows up and says, hey, this is going to happen. And Zechariah, who's a priest, an older man, says, I'm still not so sure. I'm going to need a little bit more information here. And the angel goes, yeah, well, about that. And he strikes him mute for nine nine months and a few days. Mary's not doubting per se. She just flat doesn't understand. She's a 14-year-old girl. She says, how can this possibly be? I've never known a man. I am betrothed. I'm off the market. And everybody in Nazareth knows that. And everybody knows in Nazareth that I've been pure. I have not known a man at all. How can this possibly be? And then Gabriel gives us one of the most amazing descriptions of how this occurs. Verse 35, and the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. Now listen to this language. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Oh, John the Baptizer's conception and his birth was amazing. It was miraculous. But this is unique. This is greater still. You see, the the conception and the birth of Jesus had to be even greater still than John the Baptizer's. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Gabriel's referencing countless Old Testament passages in which that is referenced. In verse 38, and Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. I love Mary's reaction there. I don't understand this, but I love it and I believe it. I hope that's been your reaction at some point in your life. I don't understand all this exactly, but I love it. It captivates my heart, my soul, my mind. I want this. I believe it. I can't explain all of it, but I believe it. Whatever God says, I'm in for. Well, then Mary's going to take a little bit of a trip. Verse 39, very briefly. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judea. So she's up in the north in the hill country of Israel in the Galilee. She goes south to the hill country of Judea near Jerusalem where Elizabeth and Zechariah live. This is not an easy journey. A lot of people have tried to say, well, clearly Mary's parents send her away because they're ashamed. It's nowhere in the text. We don't get that inclination whatsoever. So that an angel said, your barren over the hill cousin is pregnant and that's going to be a sign to you. Go and see. And so she does. Verse 40. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. I always felt a little bit cold, man. Like when my boys come home, they see me and they greet their mother. Like I get this. Verse 41, and when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry. This is an Old Testament expression meaning a prophetic utterance inspired by the Spirit. Blessed are you, Mary, among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. I want you to remember, Elizabeth may be in her 50s or 60s, we don't know for sure, and Mary's a 14-year-old girl. And her cousin walks in, and she's apparently just pregnant, and Elizabeth's at least six months pregnant, and she pronounces this blessing on you. Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Elizabeth is full of the Holy Spirit, and she recognizes that the Lord just conceived in this 14-year-old girl is present. This pre-existing, eternally existing Lord is here. 
She knows that he doesn't come into existence at the birth at Christmas. Elizabeth, under the leadership and guidance of the Holy Spirit, understands that Jesus is eternally existing, that he is the Lord in her womb. For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Blessings upon you, Mary. And then Mary gives utterance. In your Bible, you might have a subheading there. It's called the Magnificat. That's taken from the first word in the Latin translation. Mary responds. The text says that she said. But there's a rhythmic sort of a, 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 a a song-like quality to what Mary does. And it occurred to me this week, as I was looking through this again and again, this may be the song in all of human history that I would love to hear the most. I mean, I want you to think about this. This is Mary from Nazareth in Galilee, who has journeyed south across rugged terrain. She's now been told that she's pregnant. She doesn't understand how or why. So much fear, so much uncertainty, so much doubt, so much shame that she's carrying with her. And she's walking to the home of her cousin, whom she may or may not have ever met before. We don't know. She's all alone. And the angel had told her, this will be a sign to you. And she is affirmed and encouraged by somebody else. You see, that's how God always works. He affirms us and encourages by somebody else. Mary walks in and Elizabeth gives utterance and blesses her. And Mary, she just responds. And it occurred to me this week how rarely in my life, how infrequently I have had a reaction like Mary's. But it occurred to me this week, what if every single person in this room at some point this Advent, holiday, Christmas season could have a Magnificat in a way. To contemplate and to consider who God is, what He has done in me. And I can promise you, it will not happen as long as you are running around as busy as you can possibly make yourself. You will have to diligently and deliberately set aside some time to have some Magnificat time. But here's what I can promise you. It is precisely what the Lord your God would love for you to experience this Christmas season way more than the fruitcake and the eggnog. Let me just read it. I want you to hear Mary's response in praise. Starting in verse 46. And Mary said, or just maybe she sang it. I don't know. I would love to have heard this. Can you just imagine? My soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Why? For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. This is a 14-year-old girl. And she is understanding that what God is doing in her will be a blessing not just to her, not even to her immediate family, but for generations to come, the goodness of God will go through her. Have you ever had that recognition and that insight? Verse 49, For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. Her name is highly exalted one, and she wasn't until God said so. 
Verse 53 is central and it is key. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. Mary, under utterance of the Holy Spirit, understands that every human heart has longings. Every human heart desires to be filled and fulfilled. And every human heart will pack it full of everything else they can find and it will never work. Including the Christmas experience. It's never enough. She's saying only one thing can actually fill the hungry. We will always have hungry people among us. We will always have those who are suffering and who are grieving and who are going through anguish and loss. God doesn't remove that in the immediate near term. And if that's your expectation, you've been sold a bill of goods. What he does is so much better. It is so much more than merely remove our negative circumstance. He gives us joy and peace and purpose and people in the midst of our pain so that we get to taste eternity even now through these fallen, frail, fragile, mortal coils. We get to experience glory even now and we don't deserve it. He fulfills the longings of our hearts truly, profoundly, deeply, and eternally. Verse 54. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. Oh, it looked bleak. It looked like we were lost. This time he wouldn't come through, but God fulfills his promises. He's come through in a way we didn't expect, in a place we didn't expect, through a person we didn't expect and who certainly didn't deserve it because that's the kind of God that he is. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. So the Holy Spirit overshadows her, and Christ is born in her. She makes a journey to see her cousin Elizabeth. She stays there three months, and then she goes back up to the Galilean hill country in Nazareth, where in six more months she will have to go back down south to Bethlehem in the Judean hill country to actually have the birth of Christ in Bethlehem. All the while she is preparing him room. What is this passage telling us? That Jesus is who the Bible says he is. Jesus is precisely who the Bible says that he is. So how do we actually prepare him room? What does it mean when the hymn says, let every heart prepare him room? Let me just give you three very quick Christmas applications from this passage. Number one goes like this. Prepare for the world's disdain. Prepare for the world's disdain. You can only imagine all the different indignities that Joseph suffered. The shame, the rumors, the speculation. But why did Joseph go through it? Because he believed and it was worth it to him. All you have to do is turn on some music or a TV show or a Christmas movie and you will see or hear or experience untold different definitions of who and what Jesus is. They do not agree with you. They certainly do not agree with the Bible. You will hear all different sorts of ideas and notions about who this Jesus is. Is he mythological? Is he Santa's right-hand man? Is he, what is he? And if you hold to the fact that he is the God-man, the eternal son of God, who became flesh, who died, who rose again and is alive evermore, then the world will disdain you. They will disagree with you. More than that, they will be offended at your arrogance for claiming that there is such a thing as truth. So what do you do? You do what any self-respecting Christian does. You get on Facebook and you shame them for it. Oh, actually, please don't do that anymore. I've seen your posts. 
not yours specifically, but I've seen evangelicals posting on Facebook all sorts of hate speech back against people who don't understand who Jesus is. And they're not going to through Facebook. It's not going to help. You can get angry at people who view Jesus differently for all the good that that will do. Or instead, perhaps the Holy Spirit will move again in you and you will look at them through His eyes and you will go, my God, my God, why have you not forsaken me? I would think of Jesus thus had your Holy Spirit not overshadowed me and Christ been born in me. I would think of Christ that way. Would you please, my God, do for them what you have done for me? May it break your heart instead of light up your posts. Prepare for the world's disdain. They cannot, they do not, they will not see Jesus, love Jesus, think of Jesus, feel about Jesus the way you do. It's okay. It just prepares for you an opportunity for prayer. And as you're thinking of this, remember the great words of Charles Haddon Spurgeon. He said this, Now remember, you will never know the fullness of Christ until you know the emptiness of everything else but Christ. It's the only thing that fulfills And our world is telling us that anything else and everything else fulfills except Jesus. And when we say that it's only Jesus, that he's the answer, we will receive disdain. But it's okay. It's only for a momentary, fleeting, temporal season. We are strangers in a strange land, and we will be treated as such, and that's okay. So we prepare for the world's disdain. Secondly, we prepare for the Lord's direction. Prepare for the world's disdain. We prepare for the Lord's direction. Jesus isn't who you want him to be all the time, necessarily. Jesus is who the Bible says he is. Therefore, he is king. Therefore, he has authority. You and I don't get to name God. We don't get to name Jesus. That wonderful theological treatise, Talladega Nights, known as the Ballad of Ricky Bobby, where John C. Riley says, I want my Jesus to be 7.2 pound pink baby Jesus. That's how I want my Jesus to be. You don't get to name Jesus. He is the death-proof king of the cosmos who takes away the sin of the world. And I'm sorry. Jokes about my king are not funny. If he was a good guy who had lived and died, I could get on board and cracking some jokes about that. But this is the man who loves me so much that despite all of my filth, all of my shame, he loves me. And he took it onto himself at the cross. It's not funny. I love that guy. He's everything I wish I would be and one day will be. It's not funny to me. It grieves me that they don't know and love Jesus the way I have been ushered into loving Jesus. Prepare for the Lord's direction. We don't get to name our God, but his invitation is to name you. He prepares Mary to be named Mary, highly exalted one. Why? Because she was so good at um, nothing. He found favor with her. It will not be predictable, it will not be safe, but it will be good and it will be worth it. Thirdly, after prepare for the world's disdain and the Lord's direction, prepare for your own depravity. I know that's not what many of us want to think about on Christmas, but I'm telling you it's the right time to realize the enormity of the grace you are given because of the depth of your depravity. You're way more wicked and wretched than you ever dare imagine. (laughs) It's not just the stuff that you do or have done or the thoughts that you think. Oh, no, no, no. It's that you're the kind of person that does that all the time left unchecked. Genesis 6, 5, every inclination of our hearts is wicked only all the time, evil. And we are loved more deeply and profoundly and eternally than we will ever fully understand or comprehend. 
consider the depths and prepare for my own depravity. I am the kind of person that. But without the incarnation of Christmas, without the coming of Christ at Advent, without the incarnation, my greatest hope is who I am. That's horrifying. That's the nightmare before Christmas. Without the incarnation, your greatest hope is who you are. How's that going to work out for you in the end? Pop quiz, horribly. But Christmas is the gift that despite your depravity, you get grace. Prepare for your own depravity. You see, Jesus is who the Bible says he is. And he loves you. And he has a reason. But you aren't that reason. I'm not that reason. He just finds favor with us. Now, you might remember when Gabriel comes to Mary, he calls her full of grace or most favored one. Kakarakamene. It's a great word. It only appears there and one other place. And it's in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 6, where the Apostle Paul says, You, every believer, you are kakarakamene. You are full of grace. You are highly favored. You are most favored because the Spirit of God has overshadowed you and caused Christ to be born in you. What's true of Mary is true of you. No, not in a literal physical sense, of course, because that would be weird. No, 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 no. Much, much, much more. The Spirit of God has overshadowed you some marvelous, mystical, mysterious way. And the Spirit of Christ is born in you so that in a very practical, real sense, you and I are the manger. This rough-cut vessel, ill-designed for its purpose, full of slop and mess, into which the Sovereign Most High lays the Son of God. It's Christmas. As you walk by your nativity scene, you're the manger. You're the manger. Oh, I know you'd like to think of yourself as Jesus, but you're not. You're not even the wise man. You're not even the donkey. You're the manger into which the Most High has laid the Son of God so that generations would be blessed through you. The Bible says that Jesus is the Son of God. And Jesus is who the Bible says He is. And so this Christmas, may you and I manger up. Let every heart prepare Him room. And heaven and nature sing. And heaven and nature sing. And heaven and nature sing. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You that far as the curse is found, You redeem And we thank you for Jesus, that he is exactly who the Bible says that he is. And that your Holy Spirit has overshadowed those of us who believe and has caused Christ to be born in us. And Father, I can't imagine the scandal in Gabriel's mind as he's been in the presence of triune God all these millennia of eons and he's told the Spirit of God himself is going to overshadow a rebellious, depraved, corrupt human being and birth the Son of God. And yet you do so because you love us, and it is for your glory and our good. And so, Father, if there's anyone here this morning who does not know you, I pray you will move against all understanding, but the Spirit of God will do a work in them, and they will believe. Perhaps not understanding everything, but loving the notion that God is pursuing them. And if that's you this morning, you're here and you're not a believer, I challenge you to ask God if it's true 
that He wants to remove your sin and fill you with the righteousness of the Son of God. And for the rest of us, Father, this last Sunday of Advent, would you charge us, would you challenge us by your Spirit as your people through your Word to set aside some time to have a mini Magnificat where we would simply consider who you are, what you have done. Greatly are you to be praised. You have fulfilled the longings and the desires of our heart. Would you remove the anguish of the season where we have to accomplish and achieve all of these things that by January 3rd won't matter at all. But you will love us for all eternity. May we bask in that. And Father, may we have love and joy and peace. We know that's your purpose. May it be exactly as I have prayed or even better. Merry Christmas. God bless us. In his name we pray. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.